0: Greetings comrades! Sorry for this episode being so late. It all happened because we wanted to do a PDRP show and uh, we lost all records after a three-hour nice interview with uh, one of our greatest Argentinian listeners here, but that's coming too. So, well, what can you do? It's more Stalin then, but you'll get the PDRP soon enough. Anyhow, this episode itself shall be about Stalin's calcification, and really the start of his true reign, so to speak. As, at this point, Stalin has been through a lot, he has been through the net periods and building his power base, and here, at the timeline where we are, in 1922, his power comes together, and everything's set up finally. Many historians just call this the beginning of Stalin era. You see, this is important, because... Over this um, over this period where NEP was in place, Trotsky had lost quite a few of his supporters. And uh, for uh, Trotsky, the NEP was seen as a major failing. At the Tenth Party Congress, Trotsky's trade union policy, for one, had been heavily defeated. Trotsky had suggested the unions to be incorporated into the State Economic Administration, however... Lenin's policy, which was then supported by Stalin, was to allow them an independent existence as, quote, schools of communism, which were, supposedly, preparing the working class to conduct its own affairs, but without granting it the authority to actually do anything. But yeah, Trotsky's defeat, in both political and economical arena, made for significant adjustments in Stalin's favor. Quite a few of Trotsky's supporters lost their places on the Central Committee, and were replaced by Stalin's men. Voroshilov, Ordyokonidze, and two other key Stalinists of the future, Kuybyshev and Kirov, uh, were were put in this central committee, while Molotov was made a candidate member of the Politburo itself. The realignments also prepared Stalin's entry into the secretariat. And uh, the basis and everything he had worked on, all this pre-building, was now done. So... From the 27th of March to the 2nd of April, 1922, on the 11th Congress of Russian Communist Party of Bolsheviks, Stalin get himself elected a member of the Central Committee of the Party. And uh, here I want to give you a fragment of the speech of Lenin in this Congress here, which explains why, why Stalin got this position. Quote, You see, Preobrazhensky here easy throughout that Stalin's in two commissariats already. Well what can we do to ensure the existing state of things in the narkomnat which is narodny Commissariat po nationalnym um, or people's commissariat national minorities mm-hmm. so what can we do to ensure the existing state of things in the narkomnat to deal with all the turkestan caucasus and other questions they all are political questions but it's necessary to solve these issues these questions which were for hundreds of years dealt with by european countries And these democratic republics only solve them in the very least miserable part. We are solving them, and we need to have a person to whom anyone from representatives could come and talk in detail about his problems. Where we can find such a man? I think that also Preobrazhensky couldn't name any other candidacy besides Comrade Stalin. The same goes for Comrade Rabin as well. Our thing, our problem is enormous. But to be able to really check things as they are, to see things, conditions, and everything, it is necessary that in the head of all of this would be a person with authority, otherwise we will wane and drown in a sea of pity and intrigue. Then, on the next day, on the 3rd of April, when Stalin is already a member of this central committee, just elected a member there, in their own Congress, you know, after the general meeting, then the Central Committee meets, and again, after Lenin's proposal, our good old friend Stalin, Joseph Viserionovich, gets elected the general secretary of the Russian Communist Party. He will remain in this post until his death. And, uh, yeah, like we mentioned multiple times before, but it uh, bears repeating, he will make this post count and will make it the leading post of the country. However, at this point, he also lost his position in the Commissariat of Workers and Peasants' Inspections, but I'd like to explain here why he was so readily elected, because you will see how, by the end of 1922, Lenin's views on Stalin changed considerably. You see, uh, back then, the General Secretary was not the leading position of of the whole uh, Central Committee Bureau. It was just that, a secretariat position a bureaucratic office mostly responsible for uh, human resources questions. As, at this point, the party is still run by more, more or less ideological communists and revolutionaries, this post was, uh, was thought to be something, you know, on the sidelines. Yeah, some somewhere where Stalin, and he's creepy and, you know, kind of scary looking, but he will not be able to mess around too much, you know, while we get all the glory. Boy, how things changed. And, by the way, here, here is uh, some nice commentary about this whole event, because uh, I used the biography of Stalin in Russian from a certain Russian communist site, which, by the way, is now blocked uh, due to telegram blockings. Uh, seriously, the baldin.ru, which I had been using. Well, after uh, Ru- Russian, Russian state authorities, the Roskomnadzor, decided to, to fight their telegram uh, messenger because um, it can be used uh, to communicate anonymously and our secret services cannot read it. Yeah, instead of blocking that, they just discovered that proxies exist, so they started blocking tons and tons of IPs. So they blocked access to this Rue as well, which was just a pro-communist, sure, but full biography of Stalin and Lenin and others included site, which is no longer available. Which is sad because you know I hope it kind of gets back, or I'm gonna have to grab an archived version. I haven't saved all of it; um, saved all of it here uh, on my computer. Anyhow, these guys not only give biographies; sometimes they also give some neat commentary on the issue, and um, here they appear to give some criticism because. As they write, quote, in the later years, there has a there a term in, has been appearing which is called the regime of personal power of Stalin, which has come to change the the term invented in Khrushchev's era, which was called uh, the cult of personality of Stalin. New offenses and new accusations tossed at Stalin, uh, similar to those who, who Trotsky made against him about the usurpation of the political power from the working class and uh, these and but but we can obviously see that this is completely incorrect as stalin didn't uh, appoint himself the member of the politburo org bureau and the ck secretariat and general secretary but was clearly elected in um, various various conferences on the 3rd April 1922, 26th April 1923, uh, etc. Uh, in total nine, nine times. They utterly, completely ignore the fact that uh, after the first and maybe second election, these elections were basically rigged because Stalin has put all his men there and used his uh, <clears throat> Stalin's machine and special powers, so to speak, to rig all them, but yeah. Uh, these guys, uh, from whom I took this biography part, also stated that the, the Communist Party could have, uh, could have, you know, left him without a mandate, but didn't do it. And uh, here is another interesting comment. <clears throat> it's, it's not hard to imagine what would happen with the Soviet Union if at that time, uh, in the early days, the opposition uh, would have crushed Stalin a- a- apart and uh, they would just, you know, remove Stalin from power. Then, they also quote one Bakhmetyev, who apparently was an ambassador of the temporary government of Russia in the United States. This Bakhmetyev wrote in the March 1929. I personally think that Stalin is a true communist. I need to say that his speeches and postulations are ten heads above in logics and argumentation, Uh, They are so much better than everything else that comes out of his other colleagues. Doing uh, doing the things which want the right-leaning party members. That means admitting that the communistic card has played and is gone now. This means to start walking the path of liquidation of revolution as such. For me, the fall of Stalin will be another Thermidor. And uh, then these nice nice commenters state that uh, all of this uh, after Stalin's period uh, of uh, power by very weak Bolsheviks will eventually lead to the end of communism period and will uh, open up the next one and that next one will then be an oligarchic mafia state. This was written in 1929, by the way. And yeah, if you look at this, Mr. Bakhmetev has made some has made some interesting predictions <laughs> well because at least as this side claims that this is exactly what happened after the death of Stalin when the party of weak bolsheviks starting with Khrushchev refused uh, refused from his perspective uh, perspective advice and plans and started slow but methodical destruction <clears throat> of socialism who couldn't in the end lead to anything else but the restoration of capitalism. This is then presented as a deep and terrible tragedy by this site. I just thought, you know, (laughs) I should mention it before we delve in into what's going on with Lenin here, and what exactly Stalin's machine really does. See, Lenin had been through some rough times at 1922. You see, uh, after the assassination attempt on August 1918... The bullet in the base of his neck and the other in his collarbone were still there. In April, uh, April 8th, 1922, he underwent a surgery to remove this bullet. And on May 26, 1922, at the age of 52, Lenin suffered his first stroke. And in November 1922, Lenin gave his last speech. Uh, in the meantime, he spent his days uh, resting in Gori and still uh, still keeping up correspondence with Stalin. And Stalin also visited him in Gori at this point. But at this moment, his likely successor, even though major setbacks had uh, befallen on him, was still thought to be Leon Trotsky. And uh, yeah, among Bolsheviks, a bad historical analogy was being circulated. It compared Trotsky to Napoleon Bonaparte, the idea that Trotsky, a military leader, could be considered a danger to the Russian Revolution. The Communist Party at this point was governed by a five-man politburo, Lenin, Trotsky, Kamenev, Zinoviev, and Joseph Stalin. The Communists were supposed to be comrades, but Stalin, Kamenev, and Zinoviev, who were really working together, disliked Trotsky. These guys, by the way, saw Stalin more as their own lackey and a counterweight to Trotsky, instead of being faithful servants of this thing. And Trotsky, by the way, at this point, didn't, didn't really care about any of these other people, because differences within an ideological organization like the Communist Party, well, you know, the intensity of all of these beliefs, what they held and how they went about their things, just made the whole situation, shall we say, a bit deadly at points. Trotsky and his supporters were constantly, by now, being outvoted in the Central Committee. And um, that was a body of communists in the hundreds. In theory, the Central Committee had power over the Politburo. It was the Central Committee that was supposed to decide who would sit on the Politburo. The Central Committee was the creation of a greater body, a party congress consisting of delegates from the Communist Party members in general, which met for the purpose of choosing Central Committee members. Party congresses, like uh, the one that Lenin got elected into the committee, were supposed to meet every five years. Uh, The party congress of 1921, by the way, was reported to be about 700,000 or so delegates. Trotsky and his guys were concerned about democracy within the Communist Party, and Trotsky complained that people were being chosen to positions within the party from above rather than by their peers, and that this was making the party hierarchical. He didn't even know how true he was at the time. Trotsky complained that the party here he addressed its rank and file only with commands and discouraged independent use. Trotsky's guys also complained about the Communist Party mismanagement, and they complained that the party was ignoring the needs of industrial workers, who, theoretically, were the heart of the social revolution. Zinoviev and Kamenev at this time claimed that these Trotsky's charges were anti-Marxist deviations, And Zinovyev once even, like, um, (laughs) called to arrest Trotsky. In the eyes of the many members of the Central Committee, the clash between Trotsky, Zinoviev, and Kamenev left, well, just Stalin, appearing as a patient man of reason. Stalin was viewed as a man who had little interest in anything other than revolution and the betterment of the working class. Like I said, he was the elected general secretary because everyone thought, hey, that's a quiet position for a quiet, somber man. While other Politburo polit- members held more glamorous duties, duty Stalin was just that. Because, again, at this point, it was seemingly mere bureaucratic work. In contrast, by the way, what other positions everyone else is holding, so that you get this. Trotsky was the war commissar. Zinoviev was the head of Comintern, that is the Communist International, and Kamenev was the party's leading writer. Unlike Stalin, these three guys had technically... Like, they had pretensions on being intellectuals, and each of them was writing a memoir at this point. And, uh, yeah. Modest, although Stalin's position did appear to the younger rank and file, Stalin, now in his early 40s, appeared to everyone else, literally, to be one of the old heroes of the revolution. Romantic heroism was alive and well among those who had recently joined the party. And, uh, yeah... Everyone looked at Stalin and saw him, the great man, the man who did the Tbilisi heist, the great military leader, the the crazy man who had escaped so many times. And Stalin here was, you know, actually speaking with these new people, new recruits to the Communist Party, unlike, you know, writing their own memoirs and having, like, big name positions. So Stalin took in the people who admired him and patted them on the back and put them put them in the positions where they could st- serve Stalin's interests best obviously the historian adam ulam writes quote, "stalin's simple manner must have contrasted favorably with the airs the other leaders of the proletariat had begun to give themselves up to now he had spoken infrequently at party gatherings and congresses he enjoyed a reputation for a taciturnity again an exception among the rather gossipy communist types of that era" His personal following lay mostly with the intermediate level of Soviet officialdom. Many of these people resented the airs and intellectual pretensions of Zinoviev, Trotsky, and Bukharin, and felt closer to the simple, uncomplicated Georgian. And, uh, yeah, about the new generation, and this comes from another source. Mm-mm. Stalin also appealed to the new generation of hungry young Bolsheviks who combined ambition with ruth- ruthlessness and neither read Marx nor anybody else just for pleasure. This was the raw material from which he built the machine that revealed his political genius. Success, for Stalin, meant having the right supporters. Caters determine everything, was a later catchword of his. One, as valid, uh, as valid at this point as it would ever be later on. Policies alone would never be enough for him. After the correct line had been described, success depends on organizational work and the correct choice of people. End quote. Stalin, China, um, didn't want an immediate glory of world revolution. He set up to building things. And yeah, while building his machine, Stalin displays some qualities that appear at odds with the picture that, you know, we have used to in this podcast uh, of the kind of this uh, foul-mouthed, swearing, uh, f- swearing, lonely guy who sp- spends time in Siberia and, and is like coarse, and, and just is, is a bit weird, but, you know, rude, your typical Stalinist guy. At the time when, like like I said, these other guys had this growing sense of their own importance, Stalin uh, differed from them in his willingness to devote time to kind of little people, because at this point all the other leaders of the Communist Party have basically uh, become extremely arrogant about themselves. Alexander Barmine was a successful Soviet diplomat, until he defected in uh, 1937. He first saw Stalin at party gathering in 1922, and this is what he has had to say about him, Stalin was about to leave the imposing hall of St. George when I first saw him. As he approached the stairway, wearing a military greatcoat over his semi-military tunic and boots, an obscure young clerk employed at the Comintern office stopped him and asked him a question. The Comintern clerk was undersized, and is frequently true of people of very short nature, he was inordinately active. Although Stalin himself is not above 5 feet 6, the little clerk hardly came up to his shoulders. Stalin towered above him, nodding, occasionally dropping a word, listening impassively. The little fellow hopped about, tugging at Stalin's sleeve, lapel, or button talking incessantly and with what would be, to me, an irritating ardour, as though burning up with more enthusiasm than he had room to contain. What held my attention and made me remember the scene was Stalin's amazing patience. He struck me as an ideal listener. He was on the verge of departing, had one foot on the edge of the stairs, yet he stood there for almost an hour, calm and hurried, attentive, as though he had all the time in the world to give to this agitated little clerk. There was something monumental in his manner. End quote. And yeah, almost as important when it came to actually, you know, get, gathering support from the new generation of Bolsheviks and, you know, getting people to actually support him even though he's like in three positions at the same time was uh, Stalin's ability to seem the kind of man who would not make someone working for him feel bad or feel inferior. The writer Alexander Zinoviev suggests that Stalin understood that, quote, the people like a leader to be distang- distinguished not by his, by his intelligence or his beauty, but by some clearly perceptible blemish, end quote. This, as uh, Mr. Zinoviev suggests, is why Stalin did not all alter the Georgian accent, which always marked his speech. The chief characteristic uh, thing, what this accent has, is a deliberate un-Russian intonation and the inability to render the Russian speech sound "yeah." Uh, I will try to give you an example of a Russian-Georgian accent now. So, uh, when a Georgian would speak in Russian, it would seem, sound about like this. Привет, дорогой. Ты хорошо тут поработал. Это все нормально будет. Кто тут сидит? О, красивая девушка. Как So, that would basically translate into English. Like, hello, who's sitting at this table? Oh, look at this beautiful girl who's sitting next to us. It doesn't really matter. It's just that it's this... Deep, deep sounding accent, and it took me a, quite a few takes to do it without laughing myself because you know, uh, can't really do it completely right, but hey, at least you got a small impression, anyways. He kept this as this was one of the blemishes that uh, he could use to get more favors, and also, uh, seeing as there is still some kind of minor racism going on in Russia, and at that time, especially this accent, as uh, you know, people from Caucasus are being laughed at sometimes by ethnic uh, Russians. This was an accent that really didn't make anyone whom he spoke to feel inferior, and it really encouraged people to, you know, treat him as dumber, treat him as an inferior. And uh, this is kind of, you know, this this reminds us uh, that if you maybe have listened to some of Hitler's speeches, he does the same thing. He uh, has a Bavarian accent, a very southern, a uh, very southern German accent. So maybe that is that is one of the ways how these. Um, Weirdly uncharismatic people can uh, draw so much support if you think about it. But yeah, the machine that Stalin built had three interlocking components with uh, one of these overlapping functions, like I spoke about, mentioned about uh, here in this episode. He ruled over the Org Bureau, the Bureau of Organization, the Secretariat of the Central Committee, and his personal personal secretariat. The Org Bureau played an important part in making senior appointments in the capital and basically filed all the key posts in provincial party organizations. As Baskhanov put it, quote, the Org Bureau became Stalin's chief instrument for the selection of his own people, enabling him to take control of local party organizations. That's the thing here. He used this human resources department to strengthen this, his general secretary position, which then he mashed up together all in one. See, for him, patience was an enormous factor here. The Bolsheviks felt that all the glamour and seemingly the power were to be found in Moscow, Cause literally, at this point, all the Bolshevik leaders have like been drunk with their own success in the civil war, and, and the neps going on, so everyone's super, super arrogant. No one really bothered at this point with the political life of the provinces. No one, except for Comrade Stalin who decided that, hey, hey, you know, in Moscow you have to be glamorous and you have to do all these crazy things and there are too many heroes, but to take control of the, the provincial party organizations, everyone who wasn't Moscow, would basically allow him in time to take control of all of the party by just literally, but through putting key key people, his own people, in positions to give him the necessary votes, so to speak. The uh, org bureau, by the way, also kept a close track of every prominent party member, since, as you know, Stalin also wild- wisely observed, quote, it is necessary to study every worker through and through, end quote. So kind of notorious was he for this seemingly inexplicable obsession with keeping careful records about personnel, that he was, uh, by the way, uh, he, uh, he was known to his comrades as another Another nice nickname given to Stalin, like five, fifth or sixth one at this point, he was Comrade Kartochekov. Uh, Kartocheka is basically a card index. So yeah, but nobody really understood or cared that at this point he was in a position to block potential enemies. You know, because running the organizational bureau on human resources meant that none of at that time like uh, Trotsky might have had powerful pow- powerful voters for now. But as we will see in short amount of years, he, will just, he wasn't able to get his own people through to do literally anything. Until Stalin took it over, the secretariat of the party had been headed by Molotov. The first, and for a long, long time, the closest of uh, Stalin's associates. Uh, Molotov of the Molotov, the Ribbentrop Pact fame, but not only that, Molotov was also instrumental in building the Stalin machine. Molotov always had the reputation of of a kind of immovable bureaucrat, but was also known for having almost no personal initiative. He was known to his colleagues as Kaminizat, or stone arse. While a British ambassador subsequently referred to him in a dispatch to his foreign secretary as, and I quote here directly, old bootface, end quote. He took his stuff from the Central Committee staff proper, displaying that exactly same attention to tiny, tiny details, which Stalin really appreciated. And finally, uh, the last but not least of the whole important sections of the secretariat that Stalin was running in his machine was the Orgadil, which basically was the organizational district which dealt with local organizations and also the inspection and control of local administrations. And yeah, soon after Stalin took over the Secretariat, he appointed Kaganovich as its section head. He was another figure who would stay close to Stalin. Like Molotov, he even managed to out-survive him, almost a miracle when, if you understand, that uh, Mr. Kaganovich was a Jew the price of his survival was extremely high which required for him to renunciate both his culture and also his family because when stalin uh, at a later date asked asked uh, kaganovich whether or not his brother a minister of aircraft production should be shot kaganovich replied that it was the f- for the police to decide and when that happened, when when the, when he was arrested, his brother shot himself. Ginovich was um, obviously one of those, how we would say today, Stalinist types. A man completely devoid of any pity, but however, he was intelligent and an administrator, a talented administrator at that. And who remained completely dedicated to work and was essentially a workaholic, well, up until his passing away a german journalist and probably one of the one of the first and most detailed correspondents paul scheffer uh, who worked in the soviet union described him in 1931 uh, just before uh, the rise of beria as quote <clears throat> the only person of real quality in stalin's entourage the secretariat of the central committee also had a secret department which was almost indistinguishable from an element in stalin's personal secretariat, the sort of um, unofficial engine room of his political machine. Over the years, the secret department became a parallel system of government, opening at every level of the administration as both a control and an information-gathering device. Well, this was quite possibly Stalin's greatest creation, at least at the time, as this proved to be the key to his eventual political victories and everything. Now, weirdly enough, um, there are very, very, very few sources about it. Basically, even my uh, Soviet and Russian sources uh, reflect the existence of this secret structure within it, just only with some speculation and second- and even third-hand reports. And uh, it was weird, because this part, this whole secretariat thing, is um, still under very much of study, by Soviet historians uh, and modern-day Russian, Russian counterparts, because if I will ever find anything more about the Secretariat, trust me, I'll be the first one to inform you, but right now I just don't have that much information about this situation. So, now we have seen the assembly of this machine and its implementation, which will then lead on, <laughs> lead on to this brand new, nice and shiny Stalinist Nestera. But there's something that we must go a year back to. See, I've been speaking about early 20s, and this is the Stalin's political machine. But one of the biggest events that uh, really led to him establishing this machine and also going into many conflicts with, uh, by now, ill Lenin, was the invasion of Georgia. And uh, this is something that I really uh, kind of spent a lot of time researching and gathering good good stuff about, because it's a very complex issue. But as it's so important here, let us take a look at the conflict around Georgia in 1921 in the second part of our podcast.
1: Hi guys, this is Alice. Thank you for giving us your time and spending it with us. We appreciate it very much. Now, today we have two good news. One is a wonderful package we received from Dela from Germany, with a crafty and beautiful embroidered pillow for the eastern border. Thank you so much. We will post pictures of our gift on Twitter and Facebook soon. Secondly, today we have a sponsor, and it's our good friends from Studio Headphones. You may not know this about me, but I'm the kind of person that needs their headphones and devices everywhere, but I forget to charge them most of the time, so Studio Headphones got me covered. With 24 plus hours of active battery life and 20 days of standby life, the Regent, which are the model headphones that we use, is the perfect companion for me at home or on the go. It will connect to any device that has Bluetooth, but there's also an auxiliary cord if I don't want to use the wireless option. Me and Chris both have a pair of the Regent headphones. I have a white and gold and he has a black and copper, I think, or maybe gold. Now we can stand by their quality, Beautiful design and service since we recently needed a spare muff for one of the headphones which Studio happily supplied us. About their company, they want to revolutionize the way people see headphones, not as just a tech device, but also an accessory. Their Scandinavian design, a product that matches the quality of even the highest rated headphones on the market, for the fraction of the cost. Best part is, they provide free worldwide shipping. We still have a discount code, and it's the same as before. The Eastern Border, which will give you 15% off any purchase. That's the Eastern Border. Thank you, Sudio. And thank you too for listening to us. If you would like to tell us something or ask us something, please write us in at the Eastern Underscore Border on Twitter or on Facebook, the Eastern Border. This podcast is fully funded by our listeners on Patreon. So if you would like to become a patron and received all sorts of goodies, raffles, and a complimentary reading of a book, currently going towards the end of Anna Polikowska's book, you can become a patron on patreon.com slash the eastern border. We appreciate every one of you that supports us, even with your thoughts, good ratings, and good wishes. Have a wonderful day. And now, back to the show.
0: Georgia had not followed the Bolsheviks in 1917. It was a Menshevik stronghold, and it had declared its independence in 1918. This, obviously, was a result of World War I, which uh, ba- basically put uh, enormous pressure on Russia, so these guys decided to separate from Russia. Initially, the Georgian elites were reluctant to separate from uh, the the country, however, the disintegration of the Caucasus Front and the threat of invasions and chaos forced them to build a state in an attempt to protect Georgia from both military and political challenges from the Bolsheviks, anti-Bolsheviks, and the Turks, who at that point still claimed dominance over the South Caucasus. And yeah, Azerbaijan and Armenia followed Georgia's example in this uh, seeking of democracy. And yeah, for just about three years, three years of its independence, it symbolized kind of the struggle between Bolshevism and more Bengen versions of socialism. The Social Democrats of Europe held, quote, gallant little Georgia up as proof that the relationship between peasants and workers could actually be solved by democratic means. Tbilisi was to avenge the defeat of social democracy in uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow. And yeah, socialist delegations at the time often visited Georgia and returned home, well, really happy. The Belgian leader, van der Velde, brought home accounts of enthusiastic groups of peasant converts to socialism, flaving red flags and singing the international as they came to greet him. By a a curious weirdness, where this uh, Belgian leader met these natives was in the Stalin's native village of Gori. Also, Trotsky, the theoretician, trying to analyze a political situation developing contrary to predictions, found himself in a position resembling that of um, Moliere's doctor, who maintained that a sick man could not get better contrary to medical rules. He, Trotsky tried to account for the quote, <clears throat> "...the relative and incorrect stability of the regime by the political powerlessness of wildly scattered peasant masses." Uh, forgetting that peasants in the land of the Bolsheviks were, at this point, well, really, now no less powerless. Georgia did not endear itself to the Bolshevik leadership, Last of all to Stalin, whose dislike of Tbilisi, by the way, was was almost as great as uh, that of his counterpart Hitler and his loathing of Vienna. And, uh, yeah, putting into practice, for the first time ever, a basic tenet which shall. will be very strong in the following years of this Soviet foreign policy, namely that any adjacent nation too weak to defend itself should be assimilated, the Red Army um, basically acted acted as, as something similar to what Hitler will do later on. On the basis that Georgia was trading with capitalist Europe, Stalin declared it a jump-off point for imperialistic aggression. Besides, the Georgian government was oppressing workers and the good Georgian Bolsheviks who, like, uh, like everyone else whom ever, uh, ever the Soviet Union and other totalitarian regimes <clears throat> liberated, definitely needed, needed the, the, a lot of their help. So, Georgia was accused of violating its treaty with the Soviets while it was maintained that the country was upon the brink of revolution. So in January 1921, Stalin called for an armed uprising to be led by Sergio Orgiokonidze with, well, guess who? Obviously the assistance of the Red Army. The invasion plan was helped because by the end of February 1920, an alliance was formally formed between the Kemalist government of Turkey, you might know Kemal by his uh, nice name of Ataturk, and the Soviet leadership over there. And these new allies really wanted to form a stable land bridge between the two countries. So, in order, the three independent states of the South Caucasus, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia, were to be taken over and partitioned between the Soviets and Turkey. By 31st of May 1920, Azerbaijan was invaded and Sovietized by Russia's 11th Red Army. Four months later, Armenia was invaded by Turkey, and had to cede more than half of her territory, the rest being, take- being taken over by the Red Army by the end of 1920. As you can see, the Georgians were literally the last thing messing this treaty. So, what happened? This is a more detailed war account which I'm happy to have found. So, in February 1921, the Soviet Red Army invaded Georgia following the instructions. The action launched against the Soviet nation in breach of Soviet-Georgian Peace Treaty of March 7, 1920, was later presented and explained in Soviet historical literature as this uh, previously mentioned response, the Georgia's alleged support of anti-Soviet guerrilla movement in Dagestan, which is a country that which is a region in Russia which borders Georgia still. The massive assault on Georgia was preceded by Soviet stage <clears throat> popular revolt against Georgian government in mostly Armenian-populated Borcholo district and a series of violent border clashes near the town of Zakatla, claimed by Soviet Azerbaijan. On February 11, 1921, Soviet Russian and Soviet Armenian troops percolated into Georgian-controlled Borcholo and, with some support of the local population, hit Georgian garrisons in Senayni and Vorostvonskow. Caught by surprise and heavily decimated, Georgian units retreated north and westwards. Interestingly enough, um, these guys, the Russian soldiers who went in there, were really not made welcome, as it will take them ten days to reach Tbilisi. Which, uh, obviously, spoiler alert, will then receive the kind of treatment for which Soviet troops later became, um, you know, Quite well famous as the city was basically treated in the best editions of Genghis Khan with, uh, you know, murder, pillage, and, yeah, rape. A lot of it. But carrying on into the details, as this is important. On February 16th, the Soviet troops, including the regiments of 96th, 16th, and 20th Rifle Brigades of Russia's 11th Army, Soviet Armenian Mountain Brigade, and several detachments of local Bolshevik sympathizers entered the village of Shulaveri, some 25 kilometers to the northwest of Armenian border, and the <clears throat> so-called Revolutionary Committee of Georgia, consisting of red commanders and Loshov Bolsheviks, was formed in the village. The same day, They declared themselves to be the only legitimate government of Georgia and pledged Soviet Russia for immediate military intervention. Uh, We shall see similar things when we'll get to the Winter War in Finland, when we will get to Poland, to the Baltic States, literally everywhere. So, uh, some fighting happened later on against this 11th Army as it tried to advance, and next day, uh, which is the 10th, uh, Georgia was also invaded to the border town of Zakatala by the troops of 59th Rifle Brigade and 18th Fountain Division, everything belonging to 11th Army. Anatoly Gekker, who at that time was the commander of this 11th Army, received at this point direct order from Moscow to capture Georgian capital no later than February 19th. At the same time, Russia's 98th Rifle Brigade with Tersky Mountain Division was preparing to attack Georgia from Terek province through Rocky and Mamisoni passes, while the 9th Army was to invade the country through Abhazia, which is uh, the northeastern part, the spin-off part, which, again, was uh, lost in the most recent uh, Soviet-Russian war, but, you know, uh, Georgians still claim it as their own territory, but that's a contested thing, because... Many Abkhazians, uh, because I have some of them listening to the show, still claim that them getting out from Georgia was a good thing, But I'd like to hear some comments on that, but we're talking about the the first one. So yeah, while this fighting was going on, you have to understand that obviously Soviet Russia had a significant numerical advantage over Georgia. By February 16, 1921, combined Soviet forces including the 11th Army, the 9th Army, and the Auxiliary Units... Uh, boasted more than 40,000 troops with with 4,300 cavalry among them. They also had with them 196 artillery pieces and over 1,000 machine guns, 50 airplanes, 7 armored trains, 4 tanks, and over a dozen of armored cars. I I just love when when this military accounting comes in. To contain the above invading force, Georgia... ...put forward about 11,000 men of the 1st and 2nd Rifle Divisions... ...a Mountain Artillery Division and two Border Regiments... ...also a dozen battalions of People's Guard... uh, ...the later being civilian militia with obviously lack of proper training, command discipline. Georgian Defense Forces had themselves 46 pieces of artillery... ...several hundred machine guns, four armored trains, several tanks and armored cars... But, you know, we don't know exact numbers on armored cars and tanks. Oh, yeah, and uh, almost no cavalry. Which, by the way, could prove quite useful in the mountainous landscape of, of Georgia. Notably, notably, Georgians also had several quite modern airplanes by the time that were of much better quality uh, than those who uh, which were flown by the Red Army, However, again, due to mismanagement and corruption, and due to the absence of, because of said corruption, of proper oil and spare parts that the government was supposed to purchase, but never really did, Georgian Georgian pilots were, well, incapable of, you know, taking advantage of, um, of their air superiority. So, in the next 24 hours, in spite of the sustained resistance of the Georgians, the forces of the Soviet Russian Central Group took over the strategically important Yaghula Heights, while the troops of the left group entered the towns of Yekaterinfeld and Jelistavetal, thus pushing the Georgians back to the line of Kordyori-Maglinski. Uh, by the morning of the 17th, This was the perfect moment for the Red Army to storm into Tbilisi, as at that point, at the 17th of February, the defense forces of the Georgian capital were limited to only 400 battle-worthy soldiers and some 150 military school cadets. Nobody else was prepared at that time to defend Georgian capital, while the reserves were still on their way to the front line, and the remnants of, you know, jaded Georgian units, which were really depressed at this point, were in the process of reorganization. Meanwhile... Zakatala direction faced fierce battles for the town of Dedpolis in early 17 until the late of 18 February. The skirmish at this Dedpolis resulted in severe casualties from both sides, including the death in action of Soviet uh, Brigade Commander Kursko, who was in charge of the whole right group of, of invading. During the first days of war, Georgian government tried to address Moscow in order to stop the war, but the only answer they were repeatedly getting from the Kremlin was that there was no war, but some local border clashes. And uh, yeah, Lenin later on, later on, uh, would uh, use this, use this kind of war to explain it that um, that he feared that all of this quote immorality of the proceedings might have go- been too great. And Lenin presented the action as a war between Georgia and Armenia, in which Russian troops became spontaneously involved. As a result, the designs of the Armenian bourgeoisie backfired and the Soviet government was established in Tbilisi. So yeah, that's how he presented this. But yeah, this wasn't so simple, because another event uh, happened, interestingly enough, which allowed him to push this uh, fake narrative. See the Red Army got quite a serious problem in the rear while they were facing these fights in all these small towns and preparing to take uh, Tbilisi. National uprising started in the recently Sovietized Armenia, and between the 16th and the 18th of February, Armenian nationalist rebels were launching their assault on Yerevan. Early in the morning of February 18, the commander-in-chief of all Soviet forces in the Caucasus, Vladimir Gittis, Issued an order demanding intensification of all military operations and immediate capture of Tbilisi, Surami, and Borjomi. Yeah, that's not just uh, just mineral water. By the 11th Red Army, <clears throat> by the 11th Red Army, with the Terek groups simultaneously taking over the Dusheti district to the south of main Caucasus range. Other units of the 11th Army, not involved in the invasion of Georgia, were to strengthen the gar- the garrisons of Yelisavetpol and Shusha in order to prevent possible anti-Soviet uprisings in the surrounding area, to prevent the spread of Armenian national uprising into Kazakh and Nachivan lands, and launch more active operations against every anti-Soviet guerrilla, and there are quite a lot of them, actually, because whenever Soviets come, there are guerrillas against them, propping up quite quickly. At the same time... The 9th Red Army, stationed in Sochi district, was to take over Gara and Sukhumi in Abkhazia in cooperation with pro-Bolshevik rebels of Abkhazia, who launched an uprising, which at that time was again sponsored by Soviet Russia. Now doesn't this really remind you of modern day, really? Following the order to, to invade Tbilisi, The right wing of the 11th Army was to take Karatapa and Karajelan with two rifle regiments and two mountain squadrons and forced with the Red Cadet Battalion that had just arrived from Baku, while the 18th Mountain Division was to take Sihanti, Avchola, and Mstecha, thus outflanking Tbilisi from northeast and sealing a major retreat route. At the same time, the central group was to secure Yagula Heights, which the Georgians were really trying to take back. They were doing their best, because the central heights, uh, if you could look at a map, well, this is a podcast, you can't really, but if you would look at a map, uh, then you could see that these central heights are near Tbilisi, so must be protected at all costs for, for uh, the capital to hold, which it didn't really. Furthermore, obviously, uh, to support all this, Soviet air forces were to bomb railway stations and communications in and around Tbilisi. And now here comes a comment which is not mine, but from a one of the Georgian sources that I used for this episode, and I will quote it full here because, you know, it might be a bit loaded. Then again, need some comments from you listeners to find that out. Quote, <clears throat> The above plan clearly demonstrates that the Soviet command was quite sure to achieve quick victory. The Soviets counted on panic, weak and ineffective resistance, active fifth column, uh, Georgian Bolsheviks, possible lack of popular willingness to fight, as well as weakness and non-professionalism of Georgia's social democratic leadership. To a great extent, the situation of Georgia came up to Soviet expectations. The government in Tbilisi did not expect Soviet invasion and had no clearly defined concept of national defense. The armed forces were underfunded and the commanders had no clearly defined rights and responsibilities. Had that situation been different, there was a good chance of Georgia not only to defeat the invading Red Army, but completely push it out of the South Caucasus in cooperation with Armenian nationalist rebels, Dagestani guerrillas, and at least passive anti-Bolshevik resistance in Azerbaijan. And also here, comes from the same uh, site, another comment. It is hard to underestimate active support of Sovietization of the South Caucasus provided by Kemalist Turkey. Since the beginning of the first Soviet uh, Soviet Georgian skirmishes, Turkish nationalist troops were ready to invade Georgia from the south and southwest and occupy all or at least some of the disputed territories. In addition, during the first days of the Soviet-Georgian war, there were two visiting Turkish officers of the Georgian General Staff who kept providing the Red Army Command with strategically important information by wiring it through Ankara. Now, facing the disaster and almost total military collapse of the country, the government of Georgia followed the um, old and by now their usual pattern by appointing the retired general George Kvintanidze, commander-in-chief of all Georgian armed forces. Outstanding strategist, Quintanidze immediately reported to the government that, keeping in mind the current situation, only Miracle could save Georgia, and for the fourth time in three years, led Georgian troops to defend their country, because uh, because Quintanidze will be spoken about as he was one of the more prominent generals of Georgia during the World War I. The first order issued by Quintanidze was to move all troops he had at his disposal in and around Tbilisi back to the Ring of Heights dominating the terrain around the capital and to contain the enemy on Kodjori Tahamela It's a long Georgian name, but there's a line for it, which concerns the mountains. Until the arrival of reinforcements from internal Georgia. Simultaneously, Quintanidze ordered most of the troops protecting Abkhazia from the advancing 9th Army to, re- to redeploy... Uh, to Tbilisi, leaving minimal amount of soldiers in front of Gagra to retreat slowly along the coastline, with rearguard fighting aimed at wearing out and containing the enemy until the moment where possible success near Tbilisi would... maybe allow some troops to be sent back and retake whatever is lost? But maybe. Obviously, even these harsh measures and real professionalism of this World War I hero did not prove sufficient for... Uh, success here, although it did allow to postpone uh, the loss of Tbilisi to uh, the Soviets. Early in the morning, on February 18th, the artillery barrage from ward of two Georgian armored trains stationed on the left bank of Kura River forced the Soviets to withdraw from Yakula Heights, where their heavily artillery that was placed on the heights had begun to shell Georgian positions in front of Tbilisi. That successful Georgian operation deprived of fertility support the central group of the 11th Army, that launched offensive on Tbilisi at night of February the 18th and the morning of February 19th. The mountainous range forming natural fortification half circle to the southeast of Tbilisi, along kojori tahamela all this long line because it has like four different names in it. Okay, I'll try it. Folk, kojori Tabakmela. Shavanabada Sogan Soganguli line, I'm pretty sure you didn't need to know the name, was protected by some 5.5 army and guard battalions as, uh, as well as some 150 cadets of the military School. Several, several attacks of the Reds resulted in actually their defeat and retreat. By the end of 19 February, the 54th Brigade of the 20th Rifle Division was thrown back from the village of Skavanabada, while the 58th Brigade was literally decimated near the town of Soglagungi by its its 1,500 defenders with several armored cars, artillery support from two armored trains, and a number of bomb raids of two airplanes. That day, the 58th Brigade lost over 530 dead, as well as some thousand prisoners, and had to retreat to Sakaraulis Mountain. On the left flank, the 96th Rifle Brigade of the Reds, reinforced by the 12th Mounted Brigade, captured by the end of February 19th, the village of Kodyori, because its Georgian defenders had run out of ammunition. That was a serious defeat that could result in immediate loss of Tbilisi, because, since that moment, Georgian capital could be heavily shelled from these Kodyori Heights. Not to mention that possession of Kodyori allowed the Reds to attack the defenders of Tabachmela from the rear. To prevent this, General Quintaninze managed to put all together all his reserves, including two new battalions that had just arrived from Western Georgia, and gave them an order to take Cudiori Heights back. Meanwhile, early in the morning of February 20. Several dozens of Georgian cadets, with uh, one officer, really, counterattacked the advancing 96th Brigade near the village of Savitsky and managed to contain them for a while until several hours later, the last Georgian reserves counterattacked the 96th Brigade from Tshneti and Tabachmela and recaptured Kojori together with several pieces of heavy artillery that the Soviets were mounting on top of the heights at the very moment of successful Georgian counterattack. West of Kodiori, Soviet Cavalry Group made several attempts to take over the town of Manglisi that fell to their hands by the end of the next day. On the right flank of all this crazy action, the 26th Rifle Brigade of the 11th Red Army took the railway station of Rostavi and stormed towards Tbilisi along Tbilisi-Jevistapolior Railroad. On the 19th of February, however, it was stopped by the Georgians between the villages of Karajala and Kartagala. Several hours later, 26th Rifle Brigade was forced to retreat as far as Amartuli Mountain, where it was reinforced with the mounted regiment of the 9th Rifle Division. Northeast on the railroad, the Reds advancing from Satricella were also stopped in Ochrevi Livo area of the 19th of February, and by the 20th, they were thrown back east of Sagareo. Thus, at the end of the 20th February, 1921, Uh, This marked the failure of the Soviet planned Blitzkrieg, however they did win in the end, but still, this was a major setback to their original plans. Georgian defenders of Tbilisi withstood the first attempt to take over their city, and the heavy casualties of the 11th Red Army made it incapable of any serious action during the next four days. Decades later, Soviet military analysts, by the way, will mention severe winter and the destruction of Poilu Railroad Bridge that did not allow the Reds to move their armored trains and platforms with tanks to the war theater. Uh, Georgian analysts, in their turn, tend to believe Tbilisi withstood the first blow due to the, very, very much, bravado and enthusiasm of the army and the fact that literally everyone was mobilized to defend the city. During the four days following the victories at Kojori and Soganloghi, Georgians were planning to launch a counteroffensive against the 11th Red Army from, the, from their positions between Lilo and the left flank of Kura River in order to throw the Reds as far back from Blissey as possible. However, a shortage of manpower made that plan unrealistic. Meanwhile, the Red Army kept increasing its numerical superiority by receiving reinforcements that consisted of well-organized troops with combat experience on the fronts of Russian Civil War of 1918-1920. During the above-mentioned four days, Soviet engineers also managed to repair the Polyu railway bridge, and the five armored trains of the Red Army could come close to the front line together with the tanks mounted on the railway platforms. Early in the morning of February 24th, the 11th Army received a new order, this time also demanding immediate capture of Tbilisi. 24 hours prior to the new offensive, all the forces of the 11th Army were regrouped into two wings, left and right, of Kura River. The right wing of the 11th Army was to advance on Tbilisi, trying to envelop the city from northeast. This group consisted of the 9th Rifle Division and the 18th Mountain Division, both subordinate to Nikolai Kuybyshev. The backbone of this group was the 26th Rifle Brigade, combined with the 154th Rifle Regiment, uh, which they had five rifle regiments altogether, that was to launch an offensive supported by armored trains and tanks from the position between the Lilo Railway Station and the left bank of Kura. Additionally, the 12th Mounted Division redeployed on the 21st of February from the left wing, that was the storm into Tbilisi bypassing Lilo, take over the bridges across Skura, and further advance of Mishketa following the retreating Georgians. Simultaneously, the 18th Mounted Division was to raid through Sorticella and Maktrobi towards the railway station of Avchala. The capture of Avchala would seal Tbilisi at the west and make it impossible, make it impossible both to evacuate the Georgian government and to form an organized retreat of, the, of an army. If the Soviets, however, failed to capture Avchola, the division was to destroy the railway to the west of Tbilisi, as in many places as it would be possible, in order to block the movement of trains. offensive of the right wing was to be actively supported by Soviet airplanes. The left wing of the 11th Army, under the command of Mikhail Velikanov, was to enter Tbilisi from, from the right bank of Kura, and develop further offensive on Psiketa. In order to fulfil this task, three rifle brigades supported by the Heavy Artillery Battalion were to take over the heights surrounding the city. The 96th Rifle Brigade, supported by the 9th Mountain Battery, Red Armenian Ir- Irregulars and Red Cadets from Baku, were to capture the Kojori Heights. At the same time, the combined cavalry group consisting of the Mountain Regiment of the 20th Rifle Division, Red Armenian Mountain Brigade and One Light Battery, was to storm Blissey from the west through the village of Tskneti. The following forty-eight hours were marked by fierce fighting around the Georgian capital. In spite of overwhelming superiority of the enemy, Georgian soldiers, guardians, cadets, and irregulars put up stiff resistance, especially along the line Lilo Kura. Kjori Heights near the village of Tabachmila and Height one oh four, as well as the Shav section. Many positions changed hands several times because each the time the Soviets took them, Georgian counterattacks forced them to withdraw. All the defense positions around Tbilisi were evacuated by the end of February 25, only after Georgian troops were given an order to retreat. Most of them withdrew in perfect order. In fact, the Soviet plan of full encirclement of Tbilisi failed. The 18th Mounted Division that was to block the evacuation route west of Tbilisi managed to capture the village of Martkdbobi. However, several miles to the west, near the village of Norio, it had to withstand a desperate counterattack of scanty Georgian cavalry. 400 against 1500, by the way. The 18th Division managed to defeat the Georgians near Norio and stormed further westwards. Avcela station was captured by the Soviets for several hours, but evacuated by the end of the 24th after the counterattack of Georgian irregulars from Tbilisi supported by an armored train. This local victory made it possible to successfully evacuate the national government and battle worthy armed forces that occurred next day. Simultaneously, the combined cavalry group that tried to attack Blissey from the west had no success in their attempts to defeat the Georgians and trenched around strategically important height 1496. After a series of ineffective attacks, supported by artillery barrage on the 24th and 25th of February, this group relocated northeastwards to Tshneti area, where it also proved unable to cross Georgian resistance. However, the mounted patrols of this group appeared in Digomi area, and Georgian command uh, considered that maneuver a serious threat. Keeping in mind the overpowering numerical and technical superiority of the Red Army, the Georgian command made a decision to evacuate all positions around Tbilisi as well as the capital city itself. Both the well-organized retreat of Georgian army towards Mshketa and quick evacuation of the government occurred by the end of 25th February. While losing the capital, Georgians managed to save both their armed forces and administration to continue armed resistance. On February the 25th, Revolutionary Committee, the so-called one, ...moved into Tbilisi from Shulaferi, and for the second time... ...proclaimed itself the only legitimate government in Georgia. And with this I will end my detailed uh, detailed explanation of the Soviet-Georgian war... ...because, you know, it's pretty much over by this time. But still, it took the Red Army three more weeks to complete the conquest. Many Georgian units fought to the end, by the way, at which point their officers committed suicide. Before they died, many of them, really, spoke very bitterly, for example, of Great Britain's failure to offer any assistance, having re- recognized George as a sovereign state uh, just some two months before the war. They had the <clears throat> contradictions of capitalism, to thank for that, uh, together with, uh, so, so to speak, as uh, this source writes, traditional failure to offer any assistance... According to the terms of recent trade agreement, apparently, uh, the British government had given the Soviets basically carte blanche in all territories previously part of the Russian Empire. And at this point, there is little little to be done about the rape of Georgia beyond the expression of righteous indignation and the washing of hands. An enthusiastic English biography of Stalin, published at the height of uh, our good old friend Uncle Joe's popularity during World War II, describes this invasion as a rescue mission, saving Georgia from an imminent coup led by nationalists and socialist revolutionaries. Stalin, apparently, according to this thing, did the right thing for, quote, no further outbreak of Georgian nationalism has occurred since those steps were taken, which, bearing in mind the country's turbulent past, speaks highly of its reorganized administration, end quote. Well, that's not quite true, because, in fact, a tragic and very, very bloody anti-Bolshevik uprising would take place three years after the invasion. In the process of crushing it, the Bolsheviks in total in Georgia killed more than 10,000 prisoners and hostages. Men, women, children too, you know, as usual. But, like I said, Lenin really, you know, started to get a bit worried about the whole situation he proceeded with a a bit of caution. He told Orjokonidze to try and form a coalition with Mensheviks who, uh, well, obviously, sensibly declined his offer and, quote, emigrated en masse from uh, both Georgia and uh, the the Soviet Russia at that point. However, despite Lenin's calls for, you know, reasonable and mellow treatment, Russia was promptly Sovietized. Except those parts who were then uh, taken by Turkey. The administration was taken over by Russian officials nominated by the Orgburo, run by Stalin, while the Cheka established its own organization, which also favored Russians at the expense of Georgians. Despite Lenin's protestations, Orgyokonidze was tough. Really, really tough. Very much Stalin's protege, and, like him, a Russified Georgian. He put his own people in key positions, one of the appointees being another associate of Stalin's Kirov, which we will speak about in large detail in the future. Uh, Kirov also took over the party organization in Azerbaijan. Lack of regard for local feelings provoked resistance from Georgian patriots, and from those communists who really believed in the ideals of communism, well, yeah, they too were not happy about what was going on in um, in Georgia. And here, here I have a neat, um, neat sort of, again, this historical anecdote, because... This one will allow us to kind of um, kind of sense the feeling behind, uh, behind, behind uh, Stalin and this brutal administration. And uh, I, I quote from, from the source here quote, "His treatment of his native land cries out for psychoanalytic consideration in terms of revenge upon his partner parents and all those feudal aristocracy, churchmen and Menshevik intellectuals alike responsible for his growing up an underdog. It is therefore curious that he should have been surprised by his reception when he appeared before a mass meeting in a working-class district in in Tbilisi, scene of his heroic youth in the summer of 1921. He was given something less than a hero's welcome. And here is the direct recollection of events. Quote, As soon as he appeared on the platform surrounded by Czechists, guards and agents in the crowd crowd began to hiss. Old women in the audience, some of whom had fled and sheltered Stalin when he was in hiding from the Tsarist secret police, shouted, Accursed one, renegade, traitor. The crowd reserved its ovation for the veteran revolutionary leader, Isidore Ramishvili, and another of their leaders, Alexander Dghebubadze, who asked straight out, Why have you destroyed Georgia? What have you to offer by way of atonement? Surrounded by the angry faces of his old comrades, Stalin turned pale and could only stutter a few words of self-justification, after which he left cowering behind his Russian bodyguard. Quote. As you can see, Stalin's abuse did more harm than good to the Georgian cause. Stalin made a scene at a local party headquarters and promised its leaders, whom he accused of organizing the demonstration on purpose, that he would abolish Georgia merging into a Transcaucasian federation together with Armenia and Azerbaijan. Meanwhile, the party must, quote, smash the Hydra of Georgian nationalism. And yeah, as people's commissar for nationalities, Stalin this time was, um, you know, running more or less an independent line here. And at this point, this was quite okay, which Stalin later would fix when he completely takes over. But at this point, Bolsheviks um, and their leaders treated essentially their areas of command as, you know, independent fiefdoms with, like, vassal-lord relationships. However, there was more at stake here. Stalin was beginning to detach himself from Lenin's policies and pursue lines of his own. His Georgian policies being in direct conflict with the conciliatory things, you know, and the leniency which was advocated by Stalin. It would seem that at this point Stalin's loyalty to Lenin ran out. And, um... Yeah, we will look what the socialist sources say about this whole situation next time, because next episode about Stalin is going to be extra interesting. Lenin, in turn, was beginning to kind of have his own doubts about Stalin. In 1922, back to the beginning of this episode, when Zinoviev, moving against Trotsky, pressed to have Stalin appointed general secretary, Lenin observed, quote, this cook will, will prepare nothing but peppery dishes, end quote. And Stalin clashed with Lenin directly over another issue, not only the nationalistic one, whether the state should retain its foreign trade monopoly or establish trade concessions. Lenin favored the monopoly, but Stalin opposed him directly, maintaining a relaxation of the monopoly to be inevitable. Interestingly enough, Stalin subsequently admitted admitted his own mistakes later on, which was which was rare. But by then, Lenin was already safe in his mausoleum with his own convictions. And um, and yeah, I've spoken about Lenin's death and Stalin-Lenin's conflict in the Lenin series, but that time. At that time we looked at the things from Lenin's perspective and dedicated quite a lot of time on, on the whole mausoleum thing and the whole idolization and how all of these things went down. Next Stalin episode, we're going to be we're going to be looking at this again, but from Stalin's perspective and see how he managed to turn his own system, his own own so, like fiefdom and satrapy, like his feudal holding with uh, three lands in it. Seeing these three bureaus in a truly state apparatus, and how his rise to power finally cemented itself completely. The machine will start working soon, and without mercy. But yeah, next time we will gonna be talk. We'll be talking about our PDRP, which we missed last time. So uh, you might get two episodes next week. Hope you won't mind that one of them is gonna be a PDRP. But yeah, hope you enjoyed the episode. And the Sudan tovarish. Thank you
1: for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv. And we'll rummage even to the Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our Kolkhoz in the Great Motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits.